Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, the lead pastor here. And if you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us this morning. You find us this morning uh, in a series on the book of Mark. We're spending this semester looking at the first half of Mark. So we're in Mark chapter 2 today. You'll find that on page 837 if you're using one of the, the Pew Bibles. Uh, which just reminds me, if, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home that in a translation that makes sense to you, feel free to take one of ours. Not the person next to you, but one of the black ones that's in the, underneath one of them. Yeah, you understand. This series in the book of Mark, we're talking about and lo- looking at the fact that Jesus is king. The king has come in the person of Jesus, bringing God's kingdom and therefore making all things new. And we're going to hone in a little bit on today on, the, on that picture of the newness of what Jesus came to do. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll read together. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you and your word this morning. Um, we ask that you would open it up to us. We pray that you would wake up our hearts if they are still sluggish. We pray that you would bring clarity to our minds if they're still foggy this morning. Uh, because we need you. We need to hear from you. We need your work and direction in our life. Some of us come maybe this morning very eager for that and, and expectant of it. Would you meet us? Some of us come this morning um, maybe very doubtful that you're the kind of God who actually speaks, much less through a book like this, the Bible. Would you surprise us? For all of us, would you meet us in your grace? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be reading this morning chapter 2, verses 18, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they uh, might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given for our good and for his glory. 
Okay, the central image that, that's at work in this passage and that ties together uh, really the, the three different incidents we see here in what we've read this morning and, and actually ties together some of what's come previously in chapter 2 is this idea of, of newness, of new wine, as Jesus puts it in chapter 22, or excuse me, verse 22. And I've I got to tell you, for the longest time, those verses about n- nobody sews you know, an, a new piece of cloth on an old torn garment, nobody... Nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. I, I just I, I'd read that many times and had literally no idea what that meant. Um, but it's it's thankfully really not that complicated. Here's what Jesus is getting at. He said, just as you know, when when you have a, when you tear uh, a shirt or something, you you don't put uh, an unshrunk cloth, uh, patch on it because if you do, as soon as you throw it in the wash, it's going to rip away from it. And uh, in Jesus's day, wine was kept in wineskins, so you would you would make a skin, you know, out of animal skins, a, a container for wine, you'd put new wine in it, and as the wine fermented, it would, it would begin to expand. And so after you used it, if you were to put more new wine in it, it would expand beyond its capacity, so it would rip. So he said, you know, nobody puts new wine in old wine skins, you put new wine in new wine skins. And the point of what Jesus was saying was simply this, he was saying to them this, in my ministry, I have come to bring something new that goes totally beyond the boundaries of what you know up until now. I came, my ministry brings something new, a fullness, a fulfillment of what it means to be in relationship with God that you cannot simply cram me into your old expectations. Instead, you have to put it, you have to put your expectations into something entirely new. You have to be ready to be surprised. He brings a newness that doesn't fit into old patterns or old garments or old wineskins. And this newness of Jesus is a challenge to us, so much so that if we don't listen to it, we might miss him altogether. So we're going to see this about about Jesus in this newness, this, this newness of life and of rest and of healing that comes through these three things we'll see here. A new piety, a new authority, and a new heart. Those three things that Jesus comes and he brings that are new. First, a new piety. This is in that first section, verses 18 through 22. It opens up and says Jesus is being questioned by some people. It doesn't, doesn't say who it is. It's just the man on the street is asking Jesus this question. And, and basically saying this, look, everybody we know in our society around us that's really religious and that's really spiritual, they're all fasting. Okay. They're all abstaining from food as a, religious, uh, as a religious exercise. They said, you know, look over here at the Pharisees, the guardians of God's law and, and uh, holiness and purity. They're fasting right now. And look over here at the disciples of John the Baptist, John who we met in chapter 1 of Mark, who brought this, this great lay renewal movement to Israel. They said, look, the, the disciples of John, they're fasting. And now, Jesus, look at your disciples they're like throwing parties and having a good time. What's wrong with this picture? Because they said, look, you know, everybody around us that is really spiritual and really religious, they know that they're supposed to fast. What's going on with your followers? And Jesus begins to tell them a story because they're bringing up a, a fact about Jesus that was both well-known and illustrative of his ministry and his mission. If you're to look back, and we, we talked about this last week, right before this section in chapter 2, Jesus came to uh, a tax collector who was despised by his uh, society and called him to follow him. And then he went to the home of this tax collector who invited all his tax collector and sinner friends to come for dinner. And Jesus was there for a banquet to be with them. 
So while all the religious people are fasting, what's Jesus doing? He's feasting. And Jesus says to them when they come and say, why aren't you fasting? He says, look, you have got it all wrong. Let me tell you a story. He says, when you go to, when you go to a wedding, you know, do you, after the bride and groom are married and you come to the reception and this, this incredible feast is laid out in front of you, does everybody just sort of sit back and say, no, 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 none for me, thanks? You know, maybe you've had the experience that I have, having gone to a lot of weddings, uh, where you, you go to the reception and, and the, the young couple that's so excited about their wedding day feels that they need to take 412 million pictures before they come to the reception. And so you're there like an hour with all this food laid out just waiting because you know there's something wrong here. The, they're, they're married. The food is there. Let's eat and celebrate. And that's what Jesus says. He says, look, I am the bridegroom. And I am here for the wedding feast. We can't fast now. It is not a time for fasting. Okay, you know what that's like if you've gone to a wedding. It shows us some of that power of what it means to feast at the right time when there is the right thing to celebrate. Now for Jesus, though, there, and his followers, there were, and, and those who are listening, there would have been another, another layer of resonance for them. Because when they heard Jesus talking about being the bridegroom, they, they, he wasn't just pulling out an example from everyday life of here's, here are the kinds of things in which we celebrate, though it was certainly that. It goes deeper because they would have known and heard the echo of this. In the Old Testament, time and again, God portrays himself as the bridegroom coming after his wandering bride, his people. The loving groom who comes time and again to shower his love on his bride. God is the bridegroom in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus stands up before these people and says, Look, it is time to feast because the bridegroom is here and I am he. He would have said something that would have left them utterly speechless. Because behind the image he is saying, it is not time to fast, but time to feast because God has come in your presence. I am here. That is what my ministry is bringing to you. New wine and new wineskins. He says to them, you know, fasting, your timing is off. It's not the time for that now. Don't you see that I am the one who brings life and brings the bridegroom to you? And when we see these people fasting in the presence of Jesus, not understanding who he is, then I think it says something to us, and it's helpful for us as we look at at the expression of piety this was for them. For these people that were fasting, this religious duty and observance by which they uh, they were doing their best to approach God. And there is a place in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament for fasting. It's not like they just made this up whole cloth. But it's interesting that they were buying into a picture of life and spiritual longing that was devoid of Jesus because they didn't recognize him when he came. And that's true as, as we look in, around and interact with the world around us. For, for any, and this is where the gospel is frankly offensive to many, for any sort of religiosity or any sort of spiritual striving or spiritual quest that does not ultimately come home to rest in Jesus. And it's a spirituality that actually takes us away from God rather than to him. You can be spiritually in tune and you can be religiously observant and miss God. That's what he's telling them. Now, but that's not only for uh, people maybe that we would come in contact, friends and family members and hallmates and co-workers that maybe are following other ways or other religions. Jesus says this to us as well. For us who name the name of Jesus, who are following him, it's very easy still to attempt a life of spiritual connection and religiosity that's actually devoid of Jesus. And actually takes us in the wrong direction.
Because all of our approach to God has to come with this realization that God has come to us first in the person of Jesus. Now, maybe for you and for me, maybe it's not fast, although for some of us, maybe it is. Think about the other disciplines uh, that, are, that are encouraged upon you in the Christian life. Disciplines like, like reading the Bible and prayer and worship. Okay, I've had conversations with people in the past, pastoral conversations where I have given them this pastoral advice. Stop having quiet times. Okay, now, for some of us, let me let you into sort of evangelical Christianese. Okay, a quiet time. And I don't know how I got that name. But a quiet time is when, as a good Christian, you go, uh, and it has to be early in the morning before the sun comes up, or you're not really spiritual, where you'll go and you'll take some time and you'll open your Bible and you'll read the Bible. And if, if you're really good, you'll have a journal and you'll, you'll write things about what you read. And then you'll pray. And then you'll wrap it all up and you'll go about your day. And that's called a quiet time. Now, I've had to tell people before to stop having quiet times. Why? Because for many of us, sometimes that becomes just one more attempt at a piety that is devoid of Jesus. Because I've sat down and had conversations with people and said, look, your heart is so far from God. You know it. You're running in the other direction. You won't turn around, but you're still having quiet times. You go and you read your Bible and you pray a little bit and you close it up so that at the end of the day, you can at least say this. Check. At least I did my religious duty today. You're not fooling God. You're not. So stop. Just stop. I've gotten that sort of scandalized look from people who grew up for many years in the church and you're hearing that advice. And at least one case, I can remember this young woman I told this to that was on campus a number of years ago. She said, okay. And she stopped. Within a couple of weeks, we started to have the conversations of, you know, I really need Jesus. I said, Yeah. Maybe we ought to spend some time in Scripture going and reading where we hear of the Savior and His good work for us. Maybe you ought to spend some time praying, really coming to God, being honest about where you are in your own dryness of soul, in your own struggle, in your own need for Him. That would be, be a good idea. Maybe the regularity of being together on a Sunday morning to worship together really has a meaningful place. And you see when the kind of empty shell of piety was swept away, it left room for a real and deeper hunger where we could now come to Scripture with a real thirst because we knew we needed it. For this young woman, she could come to prayer because she knew that was her strength. She could come to worship because she knew that's where her life was. But it was found by coming to Jesus and seeing those exercises for what they are, not simply this religious life by which we can check things off our list, but instead means by which we are brought face to face with our Savior. And when she began to get that in her life, it began to come alive again. Because it brought her to this one, this bridegroom, this Jesus. Let me say, you might be in the middle of a really dry period of life right now, too. And let me say, there is a difference between the kind of um, an, an appropriate faithfulness and, and rhythm of life that even in the dry moments brings you back to Scripture and prayer. When you remember that there is where you find Jesus. There are times in our life that are like that, and God honors that. 
But you know what it's like, too, to have those times of life where I am just checking off the box and filling in the blank and going about my day. And Jesus would say, you are not going to find me in your false expressions of piety. You don't need those. You need me. You need me. Jesus came to give us a new piety, to strip away our empty duty, our pious striving, so that we might have something better. The real joy of entering into the wedding banquet, of being in the presence of the bridegroom, of the King, of Jesus. So we see here Jesus in this newness bringing us a new piety. Secondly, we see here in the next incident, we see a new authority. Look with me at verses 23 through 28, this next run-in that he has, and this time specifically with the Pharisees. And here's what's happening. It's, a, it's the Sabbath. It's uh, for the Jews on a Saturday. When, when uh, as Following the Old Testament, they were to cease. They were to take a break. They were to do no work. They were to rest and worship. And the Pharisees, uh, these self-appointed guardians of the law, who were in many ways very devout people, they see Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields. And the disciples, are there they are breaking off little heads of grain. And <clears throat> I mean, I don't know what you do then. All my grain comes out of a box. But I guess you rub it in your hands or something, and the chaff falls away. And there they are. They're having, a, a, they're having wheat thins from the stalk out there. And <clears throat> the Pharisees see this and... They come to Jesus and say, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you, why are you allowing your followers to break the Sabbath like this? Why are you doing what is unlawful? And they're setting Jesus up. Jesus enters into dialogue with them, though. But he, he tells them a story, and, and, and maybe a, a lesser-known story from the Old Testament for many of us. Uh, although they would know this, he ironically kind of opens up with, have you never read, he says to them, have you never read what David did, King David did? Uh, there was a time in David's life after he had been anointed as the new king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. But uh, the problem for David in his reign was that the old king, Saul, the one that God was removing, was still in power and would be for a couple decades after this. So David is the anointed new king, but he spends many years on the run, running from Saul who would have him killed. So at one point he flees from Saul's presence and he comes upon the house of God and Abiathar the priest is there and he goes in and he... And he comes to the priest and he says, I'm, I'm starving. My men are starving. Give us something to eat. And he says, look, I, I don't have anything. The only thing we've got on hand is the, the bread that's put out in, before God's presence is our part of worship. And, and only the priests are allowed to eat that. So you can't, David. David says, that's perfect. Let me have those. And he takes the bread for himself and for his men. And, and then that's the, the example that Jesus points to. Now, it'd be easy to sort of misunderstand what's going on here. On the one hand, you've got, you've got David and his men, and it's, they're doing something that otherwise is forbidden by the law, but he's hungry, so that trumps the law, and they get to eat. And Jesus is walking through the fields on a Sabbath, and they're hungry, so that sort of trumps the law, and they get to eat. Well, that's, that's not really the point of comparison that Jesus is making. He's going deeper than that. Because when Jesus points back to King David, the anointed king, he is speaking specifically about David in his role and his authority as the anointed king of Israel. You see, he is saying David was God's man on God's mission, and therefore he had a special privilege to do what otherwise would have been forbidden. He had the authority to do that. And when Jesus says, let me tell you about a story about David, Jesus is speaking that as the descendant of David, the greater David, the king who was to follow after David, the one, the Messiah, that God's people were looking for and waiting for. He's not saying, I was hungry and David was saying, he was saying, David had authority and I have authority to do this. 
But notice that he goes one step further than even David would have, is the anointed king of Israel. Because he doesn't stop there. He gets down to the end of this section, verse 27. He says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, lots going on here. He's saying basically this. You tell me this. Did God create the Sabbath and a whole lot of regulations and rules, and then he decided to create some people so they could live under those? Or did God create people in his image that they might know him and be in relationship with him, and in response to that, give them the gift of the Sabbath, of rest, of a life to live in a pattern that was good for them? See, he says the Sabbath was a gift to man. And he goes on and says, since it's a gift to man, let me tell you, the Son of Man... And that was one of the ways Jesus often referred to himself. And when he says, I am the son of man, it comes with a lot of Old Testament freight. Much of which comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, where it speaks of seeing the son of man coming in all his blazing glory. You see, when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he is saying, I am God come home to you here. He says, the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, much like the hiddenness of what he said with the bridegroom, he comes here and says, I am the son of man and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Not only am I not subject to the rules that you know about the Sabbath, I am the giver of it. And let me remind you what the Sabbath is for. It is for your rest and your delight and your provision in your life. And he says, I have come to bring this for you. You see, Jesus comes with all of this Authority. Now we hear the word authority and something in us just chafes for many of us on the inside. Because when we think of authority, we think of all the ways we have seen authority um, misused. We've seen the ways that authority so often brings oppression. Um, You know, maybe some of you are living in the house of your parents and you feel that towards you. Maybe some of us as adult children look back to our parents and still feel some of that as well. A wrong use of authority something God cares enough about that he mentions it in Ephesians chapter 5 in the middle of talking to God's people about how families ought to work. He says this to fathers. He said, fathers, don't provoke your children. Love them. Care for them. Don't misuse your authority. Don't, amu- don't abuse it. Or maybe you're, uh, you're a student and you felt the backside of authority when you've turned your paper in to that professor that you know just doesn't like you. And you know and you come to see when you get the grade back that that dislike spoke louder to your professor than all the good research you'd done. Maybe you didn't get a grade you deserved because you've seen authority abused. We look around and we say that power has a tendency to corrupt. I was reminded of a a picture that just sort of stuck in my mind of this, of of being on an airplane. I was corrected after first service. We've got to remember, this was pre-9-11, if you can remember what that was like, when we used to get on airplanes and it was no big deal. Uh, so we're sitting on an airplane, and uh, there was there, there was getting ready to taxi, and there was a man who stood up to put his briefcase up in the overhead compartment. And the airline steward stood up and came back to him and, in a loud voice so that everybody could hear it, just started chewing this guy up for standing up when he should not stand up, that he was not following the rules, and he needed to sit down, or the plane would not be able to leave, or he'd be removed from the plane. I think he even went that far. And I'm listening, again, pre-9-11 years, I'm listening to that thinking, man, here's this guy that has this much power, and he's using it to beat this other guy over the head. I felt pretty good about myself for about a nanosecond and thought, how often do we all do that? 
whatever bit, degree of authority and power we have, how quick we are to abuse it, to use it wrongly. And so when we hear that word, maybe get all the wrong associations, but here when we hear that Jesus has authority, we need to hear that he has the authority of God. And that he comes to us for our good. And when he speaks of the authority of being the Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am using my authority and power to bring you rest. To bring you refreshing. To bring you healing. Because he reminds us here that Jesus is the one, the only one who can bring the rest that we really need. And we don't achieve that rest by following a set of rules as the Pharisees maybe were trying to. We receive that rest as a gift from the gracious hand of the Lord of the Sabbath. We find our rest ultimately in the person of Jesus. New wineskins, new rest, new life in Jesus. So he comes and brings a new piety and a new authority. Finally, he brings us a new heart. Look with me in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. The, the, the thing he is driving home here, it is, it is a sharpening, it's an intensification of what has already been happening as he confronts him about the Sabbath and what it means to honor that. You know, earlier in this, a moment ago, he was out in the fields. The Pharisees were out in the fields watching what was happening. But here, this takes place in the synagogue, in the local assembly of God's people. It would have been like a church service. And here, the uh, Pharisees aren't simply keeping an eye across the fields. They are waiting in the back row to see what Jesus is going to do next. And they sure hope that he won't, sure hope that he will heal this guy. Because then they've got him. Right? Because in this synagogue assembly, there, there was a man there with a withered hand, shrunken up, it didn't work. Which not only is a, a, a tragic um, handicap for this man, it was, it was a religious handicap for him as well. Because somebody who was disformed based on Old Testament laws was not allowed to go into the temple, the real heart of Israelite worship. They were left on the outside. So it's not just an inconvenience or difficulty for this man. It represents a real religious separation for him. But there he is in the synagogue. What's going to happen next? What's Jesus going to do next? And the Pharisees are lurking to see, is he going to heal him? Because in their view, healing was, a, was work. And on the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest. Now, the Pharisees had all kinds of accumulated laws that sort of safeguarded the the Sabbath and, and allowed for certain kinds of medical intervention. For example, if you go out, if you're, you're walking on the way to the synagogue on a Sabbath morning and you see somebody who is injured on the side of the road and bleeding, well, you could stop and help that person. And essentially you could do this. You could stop the bleeding and do everything that was necessary to make sure that they would make it through the night. And then tomorrow you could do the real work of actually helping them get better. You just didn't want them to get worse at that point. Because if you do any more than that, if you really try to heal them now, then you're actually working and you don't want to work on the Sabbath. You see how carefully they were trying to split the hair of what it means to be faithful in observance of God's commands. So when Jesus heals this, this man with a withered hand, he wasn't bleeding to death. He'd had a withered hand the day before and for who knows how long before that. And he was going to have a withered hand the next day. Jesus could have healed him the next day. I see you. Let's get together and talk tomorrow. No. Because it's too important for that. Because Jesus says, not only is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, it is an imperative to do that. Because the Sabbath is about bringing life and refreshing and refreshment. He says, we cannot hold back and wait for this man because we can wait and heal his hand tomorrow. We have to do it now because I am the bridegroom and I am here and I am bringing new life and new wine here and now. 
Jesus takes the Pharisees to task for their misaligned priorities. Uh, Ben Witherington, a commentator, says it this way. This section, this story, is about a withered hand and a withered heart. Do you hear how Jesus responds to the Pharisees? When he sees the setup that they have devised here, he looks at them. And it says that he sees the hardness of their heart and that he was angry and he was grieved. He was angry and he was grieved over their hardness of heart. Last week, again, earlier in chapter 2, we saw Jesus having this feast with sinners and tax collectors, those on the outs. Nowhere there do we see that he was angry and sad about what was happening. But here, when he is with the very good people, And the religious professionals, those who have lost sight of where their hearts have strayed, it says that he was angry and he was grieved. Because these people don't see that they need Jesus. And they don't realize how far they have been hardened. Because Jesus comes not simply to change the exteriors for us, but to drill down deep into our hearts and bring real, lasting Heart change. Because we live our lives out of our hearts. Not a word that you speak, not an action that you do, did not start in your heart and its basic commitments. One of the the main Old Testament promises, one of the great hopes in the Old Testament, is that one day God would come and bring His people new hearts. Listen to the way it's spoken in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear? He comes and he says, the day is coming when I am going to do heart transplant surgery for you. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take the hardness of heart out of you and make it soft. And then you're going to be able to step into a life of following Jesus and obeying Him that comes from gratitude and life. Not the empty form of piety, but one that is plugged into the bridegroom that has come that we might have joy and you will live a life of that kind of response. And He looks at the Pharisees and He says, Your hearts are hard. And you haven't had this kind of surgery and it is what you so desperately need. And so Jesus, seeing that and all that is at stake here, He takes the bait with his eyes wide open and he steps right into the middle of the trap and lets it close around him. He says to the man, come here. Everybody watching? Stretch out your hand. And it was healed. You see what happens next? The trap is sprung. Here Jesus has said to them, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To bring life or to destroy And he gives them this beautiful picture of bringing life and healing. And these Pharisees who were so concerned about the work that might be done on the Sabbath, what do they do? They go and do do the other side of what Jesus has said. They go and they do evil and they bring death. Because on this Sabbath day, they leave the synagogue, they walk out the back, and they go to their political opponents, the Herodians who were supporting the Roman Empire, and they said to them effectively this, We don't agree on anything except this. We have to destroy Jesus. That was their Sabbath observance. And so from this point, and this ends a stretch of 
interactions Jesus has had throughout chapter 2 and 3 called the conflict narratives. It comes to a head right here. And so now, after this very moment, the rest of Mark and the rest of Jesus' life is going to be lived in the shadow of the cross. Because it all starts working right here. When Jesus comes and says, I am new wine. You need new wineskins. I am the bridegroom. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I've come to bring you rest and joy and healing and life. And he says to them and he says to us, will you hear it and will you take it? Will you take this newness that he brings that makes all things new? He comes and brings a new piety and a new authority and a new heart. And as he does this, coming and saying, I am the bridegroom, the one who brings the joy of God into your presence. Do you remember he also said, there will be a day when my disciples will fast and mourn. Because this bridegroom who came to bring us joy knew the day was coming when he would be ripped away from the joy that he came to bring. That there would come a day which would not be celebration for him, but would be of agony and of death, so that we could come to the party and come to the banquet and take of the food. He was deprived of it. He says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, of rest, of provision. Yet the day was coming when the very one who meets our needs, who brings us close, was cast out and far away. Hanging on the cross when he said these words to God, the one who's come to invite us in, the one that Jesus has come to bring us home to. And Jesus himself hangs on the cross and says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken on the outside so that we might be brought in. Jesus who comes and brings new hearts, hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, experiencing a heart that was broken for us that our hearts might be made whole. New wine. Put in new wineskins. And a new invitation that we might come and have this life, have this healing, have this restoration, be brought into the feast by the newness of Jesus. The newness that we need. The new wine that we need. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you give us hearts of flesh instead of stone. Lord, for those of us very much standing on the outside, would you open the door for us today that we might see your goodness and come in to you. For those of us, maybe following you for long, but hearts still, at times stubborn, times hard, would you continue your work of softening us? Lord, show us again the glory and beauty and vastness of the gospel. That we might enjoy the feast. And we thank you that you have come to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.